0: brethren, in just two weeks, two weeks from tomorrow evening, we will be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. Many of us in the locations around the globe where God has chosen to place his name. Some of us will be here, unable to attend the feast in distant places for whatever reasons, but we should still be celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles, as all of God's people will be During the feast, we're going to focus on the fulfillment of the plan of God for mankind, the wonderful world tomorrow, a thousand years of peace and prosperity, a time when peoples and nations of the earth will finally have the opportunity to know, to understand, To learn to live the way of life that leads to life, everlasting life. We're going to reflect at the feast on the reality that a unique group of first fruits will have. A group of individuals that God will use to re-educate, to guide peoples and nations. We'll be admonished at the Feast of Tabernacles To practice living our lives separately from the world that we're currently stuck in. And we'll be reminded of this every evening when we go back to our temporary dwellings. Dwellings that themselves God designed to remind us that this world is not our home. Brethren, my purpose today is to remind you of a big picture That will be revealed through the coming Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Last Great Day. I want to exhort you and encourage you to keep in mind the incredible purpose that God has for us and for mankind. Today I want to talk about how we prepare for and even live through the feasts, particularly the Feast of Tabernacles, and how we need to meditate On the trials of this life and how they're designed to prepare us for the coming kingdom of God. Specifically, brethren, today I want to review with you one powerful reason for trials. Something we need to seriously focus on as we go through these fall holy days. If you're looking for a title for the sermon today, I've entitled it, The Blessing of Trials. The blessing of trials. How dare I come up with a, t- a title like that, right? Trials are hard. How can they be a blessing? Well, I think you know some of that. Miss Bryce reminded us of some of that in her song today. We're going to talk about that for the remainder of the sermon. Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, let's start with a bit of a broad overview here. Why are we here? What is our purpose, brethren? Why did God call us? What's He doing with us? What is He doing with our lives and with our bodies? 2 Corinthians 5, let's start reading in verse 1. As Paul wrote here to the church at Corinth, and he writes to us almost 2,000 years later, 2 Corinthians 5 1. For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building coming from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What house is he talking about? It's not the residence that we live in, that we came from, that we left before we came to services. Brethren, you're sitting in the house, you're sitting in the tent. You live in it every day. It is your flesh and your blood. Verse two For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Do you ever groan while living in your heavenly tent? Or your excuse me, your earthly tent? The older we get, the more we groan in it, don't we? The older we get, the more we yearn for that heavenly tent. To be out of these earthly bodies and into something permanent and spiritual. Let's continue. Verse 4, For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up in life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us his spirit as a guarantee. This is one of my favorite scriptures. God gives us His Spirit, His Holy Spirit, as a guarantee. This word means a down payment, in earnest. But it literally means a guarantee. When God puts His Spirit into us, as long as we don't quench it, as long as we work with it and fan it into flame and help it to grow, that Spirit is a guarantee that we will be first fruits in His kingdom. If you don't have God's Spirit in you yet, that's definitely one of the reasons why you want God's Spirit in you. You want, I hope, the guarantee within you that you will be a first fruit in the kingdom of God. Without it, we will not. It's something that God has opened up to all of us sitting in this room and hearing this sermon. If we understand it, He is calling us and He wants to give us His Holy Spirit. Let's continue. Let's skip down actually to verse 14. Verse 14 of chapter 5 here. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. If we're baptized, we have God's Holy Spirit. What happened through that baptismal process? We were put down into the water, were we not? That old person, that old way of living was buried in that watery grave and we came up a new man or a new woman. And God said, I want you to walk in newness of life. And I want you to live not for yourself anymore. But I want you to live for me. And for my purpose. That's what we do at baptism. We we repent of our self-will and our selfish nature. And we say, here I am, God. Use me, mold me, fashion me. Use me for your purpose. Verse 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh. Yet now we know him thus no longer. Verse 17. Therefore. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. We're reconciled. We're brought back to Jesus, to, to the Father, actually, through Jesus Christ. How? Well, it's that shed blood of Christ, isn't it? God will not have evil in his presence. He will not have sin in his presence. For us to be in the presence of God, we've got to be without sin. And it took the death, the sacrifice, and the blood of Jesus Christ to make that happen. Thus, we can be reconciled to Jesus Christ. We're given a ministry of reconciliation. Verse 19, that is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed us To us, the word of reconciliation, verse 20. Now, then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That was Paul and his colleagues writing to the Corinthians. But we too, brethren, as we are resurrected from that watery grave, we come up. We live and we walk in newness of life. God has called us, too, to be ambassadors for him and for his way of life. To stick out in this world and to stand up for his truth. To help preach his truth to this world who so desperately needs it. God has called us to act as representatives of his way of life and his kingdom to the sin-sick world around us. At the same time, he's molding and fashioning us, isn't it? He, into individuals who will more closely reflect him, who will act like him. <clears throat> a few years ago at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jamaica in 2012, our Jamaican pastor, Mr. LaSalle Fraser, made a comment in his sermon entitled "Walking in the Light." And he challenged us in the audience. He said, will we, or he asked, will we use the feast as a springboard to walk more carefully in the light? Will we use the feast as a springboard to walk more carefully in the light? Brethren, how will we use the feast this year, regardless of whether we keep it? Whether we're on the other side of the globe, the other side of an ocean, the other side of a country? The other side of a state or the other side of our house? How will we use the feast this year to walk more carefully in the light? 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's turn there together, please. 1 Peter. We'll come back to Peter a little bit later in the sermon as well. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you, brethren, that's us. All of us. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. We are special, as you know, in God's sight. Very special. God has called us. When you think about it, he's issued us each an invitation to attend his fall holy days. In two days, we'll be back together again. Celebrating, rehearsing the Feast of Trumpets. And we're going to be here because God said, I want you right here. Not everybody in the world, but you right here. What a neat thing to think about, to chew on. We're special in God's eyes. He's called us for a special purpose. Yet God still allows trials in our life, doesn't He? We're His ambassadors to this world. We're His royal priesthood. We're a chosen generation. Yet He still allows trials. Painful trials, hurtful trials sometimes. Why? Why does God allow this, brethren? What do trials have to do with the fall holy days? And our coming role in the kingdom of God? How do the two fit together? What do trials have to do with remaining separate from the world and acting as Christ's ambassadors? We're going to talk about that. We're going to chew on that in the sermon today. We're going to meditate on that together for a little bit. I'd like to... Read you the lyrics of the special music again. Some of you have heard that song before. I'm going to read them. I'm not going to sing them. I can't hold a candle to the special music. But I'd like you to chew on the words a little bit as we go through them. The piece is entitled Blessings, written by a woman by the name of Laura Story. And they go like this. We pray for blessings. We pray for peace. Comfort for family. Protection while we sleep. We pray for healing. For prosperity. We pray your mighty hand to ease our sufferings. And all the while, you hear each spoke in need. Yet love us way too much to give us lesser things. And then the chorus. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? I'll continue. We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. And we cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love, as if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while you hear each desperate plea and long that we would have faith to believe. And don't you think God does that? Don't you think he's sitting on his throne from time to time just saying, please, trust me, believe me, I'm telling you the truth. I know you can't see it, but I've got it set up. I've got this one. Let me do it. Long and long that you have the faith to believe. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? And then the bridge goes like this. When friends betray us, when darkness seems to win, we know. The pain reminds this heart that this is not, this is not our home. It's not our home. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? And what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? And what if my greatest disappointments... And the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy. And what if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Powerful words to ponder. I heard, an, I read an interview with Laura's story a number of years back. Her husband had a brain had brain cancer. Very, very difficult trial. He was actually healed from his brain cancer. And in the interview, Mrs. Story talked about a number of aspects of the song that rung home to her and lessons that she learned, but she didn't talk about this transition part of the song. This idea that the trials of this life reveal a greater thirst. That this world can't satisfy. Brethren, in a world that is rapidly departing from God's way, decaying more and more into more of a vivid reflection of the God of this age, the trials that God allows in our lives really are merciful gifts, reminders from him that there is a far better and more perfect world coming. Two weeks ago, we had the opportunity here in Charlotte to hear a sermonette by Mr. John Robinson, in which he talked about pain and the purpose for pain. And he said, I quote, we need pain today. Pain is a necessary tool of God. And he went on to talk about how we look forward to a time when God will no longer need pain to teach lessons. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 12. Let's look a little bit into the concept of trials. I'm going to come back to this idea that trials can help teach us and remind us that we need something else. We need out of this world. We need into God's kingdom. But before we get to that part of the sermon, let's review the broader purpose for trials. 2 Corinthians 12. Some of you may know where we're headed. We're going to look in at the trial of the Apostle Paul, one of his trials. He had many trials, didn't he? And he literally experienced pain multiple times. Yet, this trial that we're looking at was probably a trial that didn't cause physical pain. Many theologians, many in the church... We realize that this trial that he's talking about very likely could have been blindness or losing his eyesight. We might call it macular degeneration today. Something he struggled with. Something he approached God with multiple times. Let's start in verse 5. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 5. Of such a one I will boast, yet not of myself... I will not boast except in my infirmities, for though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees of me or hears of me. Paul, before that, was talking about how he was trained by Jesus Christ. He doesn't want to boast, though. Verse 7, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, a messenger of Satan, a tool of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. How might Paul have been exalted? Think about it. How might he have been exalted? How many books in the Bible did Moses... Ten. Five? Five? How many books in the Bible was Paul inspired to pen? Fourteen? Almost three times as many? How did God use the Apostle Paul? How many people did he save? Through miracles. Through God's wisdom coming through him. From a physical standpoint, Paul had plenty, plenty that he could have gotten puffed up about. Yet he says, this is a messenger of Satan to buffet me, to keep me humble. Let's continue. Verse 8. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord. This is his trial. I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. He went to God, he asked, he begged, pleaded. God, heal me. Take this from me. I would surmise that He was probably even anointed three times for this. Why not? He taught about it. Yet what was God's comment? Verse 9. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness or in your weakness. That was God's comment. Have any of us ever had God answer our prayers that way? My grace is sufficient. That's a hard prayer to have answered that way. That's a hard answer to swallow that and say, yes, Lord, you know what's best. Let's continue. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Verse 10. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities. I doubt very much. He was saying, God, bring it on. I want more. That's not the perspective here. I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul realized that it took trials. It took fire. It took pain to strengthen him, to make him strong. Strong in the faith. Strong in his focus. Convicted. That the ministry he had and the job he had to do was purposeful and it was for a reason. And it had to be done. Because something greater was coming. Let's go to Isaiah 64. Isaiah. Chapter 64. This passage has been sung here as special music before as well. Some of you sung it. The song of the potter. But what do we see when we think about trials? What does God tell us? How does he enlighten us? Through the pen of Isaiah here. Isaiah chapter 64 verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay. You are the potter. And all we, excuse me, and all we are the work of your hand. What's the comment? <laughs> You're the father. You're the potter. We're the clay. We're not the potter. Something else is the clay. We are the clay. Brethren, what do you know about pottery? Many of us have probably seen pottery molded and fashioned. Some of you, some of us, have done that before. What does a potter do with clay? Well, today you probably get your potter's wheel out. It spins. It rotates. And you get this... Lump of clay. Seems like we're called a lump somewhere else in the Bible, aren't we? Maybe 1 Corinthians 5. He gets this, he or she, the potter, gets this lump of clay, moist, sprinkles water over it, puts it on the potter's wheel and starts spinning it. They get their hands wet, and they begin to mold this spinning lump of clay, don't they? They want to make it tall, they push their hands. They use pressure, fingertips. Fingernails sometimes, other devices to help this clay grow taller. What if you want to make a vase or a pitcher or a bowl? What do you do with that lump of clay? You pull out a device. And you take it and you stick it down into the top of that clay as the wheel is spinning. And it begins to spread out. Sometimes you get too much overlap and you have to roll it back in there. Sometimes the clay doesn't react like you expect it to. You have to stop. Stop the wheel. Push it back together. Beat it down. And start spinning it again and working with it with your hands again. Molding and fashioning it until you get what you're looking for. This is the example that Isaiah is using, isn't it? God is the potter. We are the clay. Does it ever feel like you've been pounded down all over again? Does it ever feel like something sticking in your side to push you in a direction? God is molding us, isn't he? He's fashioning us. He knows what he wants us to look like, just like an artist. Knows in their mind where they're going with the piece of art that they're working with. And they keep working on the clay until they get what they're looking for. Let's look at another scripture. 1 Peter chapter 4. Go back with me, please, to First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. God is molding us. Elsewhere, he talks about he's pruning us. Why do we prune our bushes? So they take the shape that we want them to have. And in a number of cases, we prune them even when they're growing well, so they'll grow even more. I pruned bushes in our backyard hedges four weeks ago. Tomorrow. We've had rain since then, and they have just exploded with growth. I need to go prune them again. But God prunes us, he molds us, he fashions us, because he has in mind what he wants us to look like. First Peter chapter 4. <clears throat> let's start reading in verse 12 here. First Peter four twelve, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing has happened to you. What's he saying? Brethren, don't be surprised when you get hit by a trial. Don't look at a trial and say, why is this happening? It's foreshadowing, if you will, from a literary perspective. We're being warned. Trials will come when we counsel people for baptism. One of the things most of us talk about is, don't be surprised to have trials even after you're baptized. They don't go away once God's Holy Spirit, that down payment, is in you. Trials will still come. And that's what Peter is talking about here. He says, but rejoice, verse 13, to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. To be envied. We're to be envied if we take one for the team in the name of Jesus Christ. For the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed, but on your part he's glorified. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, as a thief, as an evildoer, as a busybody in the people's matters. He's saying, don't suffer for sin. If you're going to suffer, you need to suffer for righteousness when you don't deserve it. There's no glory. There's no praise. There's no honor in suffering when you deserve it. That's the point here. Verse 16. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will the end what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Yes, judgment has begun. For us, hasn't it? It is underway. Brethren, the fruits will not be judged when Christ returns. We're being judged now. We're in the process now. God is working with us now. He's watching us now. He's molding us and fashioning us now. The blood of Christ to forgive us of our sins is applicable now for us. The world will have their turn later. But our opportunity is today. Verse 18. Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will be the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. We will suffer according to the will of God, won't we? It's God's will. For us to suffer in this life. As Christ suffered. To learn as he did. But also to grow. And be molded and fashioned through this suffering process. God refines us. I won't turn there. You can look it up on your own. Psalm 66 verse 10. We're told that God refines us as silver. Refining in a fire. How do you refine silver? Silver ore. (laughs) Well you start with. Silver ore in in, in a rock form, and you crush it, and you grind it into powder, and then you heat it to high heats. And the things that aren't silver, the impurities, will float to the surface, and you skim them off. And You let it cool, and you heat it again. Fire! And you get rid of more impurities, and you let it cool a bit, and you heat it again. And you burn off more of the impurities, the dross. Fiery trials are like that, that Peter talks about. Let's go to Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17. What is God testing? What is God trying to prove through this process of allowing trials, of letting it be his will even, to allow trials to happen in our lives? No, God is not a masochist. God is not mean. He doesn't rejoice in our sufferings. In fact, the scripture tells us that. He doesn't even rejoice in the death of a sinner. But he's got a purpose. <clears throat> Proverbs 17, verse 3. The refining pot is for silver, the furnace for gold. But the Lord tests The hearts. He tests the hearts. Deep down inside of us, he wants to know what we're made of and what our focus is. Where is our focus? What really means something to us? He wants to know, will we endure? Are we willing to suffer for righteousness' sake? Will we endure suffering even when we don't bring it upon ourselves? And we're mischaracterized. Will we see trials as God's merciful way to separate us from Satan's sin-filled world? Will we see trials? Are we willing to see trials as reminders? Powerful reminders that there is another, a better world coming. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2. Trials make us better. They refine us. Trials are designed to refine everyone, to change us, as you know, to help us focus differently. Trials even changed someone who was perfect to start with, didn't they? Hebrews chapter 2. Trials changed someone who was perfect to begin with. Hebrews 2, verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of our salvation perfect through sufferings. Christ, the captain of our salvation, was made perfect. How? Through sufferings. That's one to ruminate on. If Christ was perfect, could be made even more perfect through sufferings and was willing to go through it for the joy that was set before him because he saw the end. He saw what was coming. He saw that this world was in such desperate need of a true righteous king that he was willing to go through what he went through and to have it pounded into his physical head even more how badly this earth needs a savior. He was willing to suffer and endure the cross because of that joy that was set before him. Brethren, our trials are specifically intended for us. They're to teach us, to mold us, to fashion us, and to remind us that this world is not our home. I'd like to read to you from a personal from Dr. Meredith in the September-October 2011 LCN, Living Church News. The uh, personal was entitled Faith, Antidote for Worldliness. Dr. Meredith stated this. He said, you and I today as converted Christians are among only a very few in this present age whose minds have been open to the truth And who've been able to receive blessings that most of mankind will not know until the millennium and beyond. But even though he, excuse me, even though we as first fruits have access to the benefits of God's way, we must remember that we are living in a type of Babylon or Egypt from which we must flee, just as the ancient Israelites fled from their captors during the events pictured by the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Like our forefathers, we had better be preparing to flee modern Egypt in order to come out of sin. And then he concludes, When I visited church brethren, I often find that they, and all of us at times, still enjoy Egypt way too much. Unquote. It's from page 3 of his article. But he reminds us that we've got to be fleeing the society around us. And trials can help us do that. Brethren, do we, as the song says, do we use trials to reveal a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? I had a conversation with a church member before services today. He said, I'm looking forward to the feast, but I feel bad because even I'm, I'm looking forward to something else more than the feast. The kingdom of God. And I was thinking right on. That's what we really need to be thinking about. The feast points us to that kingdom. If if we're looking forward to the kingdom of of God, the feast is only going to get us even more excited about that. Brethren, what is our job today? God has purposes for trials. Multiple purposes. He's molding. He's fashioning. But brethren, he's using trials to help focus us. He's using the pain to help focus us on something More important than the world today. Sometimes pain wakes us up, doesn't it? Have you ever been doing something routine and mundane? Not really paying a lot of attention and you make a mistake. Maybe you slice your finger with a knife in the kitchen or burn yourself on the stove. Or you stub your toe on something, the little toe. Oh, that really hurts. (laughs) But what does it do when we feel that pain, that jolt? It wakes us up, and for a little while longer, we're paying a whole lot better attention until we get lulled into complacency again, and it has to happen again. Trials can be like that for us, reminding us to be alert, to be focused, to really understand why God lets trials happen. Brethren, we have to remember who we are. We need to remember who we are. Let's turn to Hebrews 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Mr. Ames read this passage in his sermon two weeks ago. As he talked about the coming Jerusalem of God on the earth. Hebrews 11. We're going to start reading here in verse 13. Because as we think about trials, and we think about why God has singled us out, and he allows these trials according to his will. Remembering who we are. And who we're called to become. But who we are now. Will help us. Take these things in stride. And see that bigger picture. Hebrews 11 verse 13. These all died in faith. Not having received the promises. But having seen them afar off. Were assured of them. Embraced them and confessed. That they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Who are these people? We can go back to the verses before. We're talking about. The paragons of faith, our fathers and our mothers in the faith Abel, Enoch, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Samuel, the prophets. These individuals lived on this earth and they died. They saw the kingdom of God in a haze, not clearly they couldn't get their hands on it but they were aiming toward that kingdom of god they realized that they were what strangers and pilgrims that was one of the biggest lessons of abraham's life wasn't it at age 75 75 brethren he and his wife and father-in-law headed up to haran apparently after his father-in-law died god said go to egypt And then they went to the Holy Land. And then they went back to Egypt. And then they came back to the Holy Land. This was all before (laughs) U-Haul. And the companies we have to move our things. This is camels and donkeys and mules and horses. And Abraham had lots of those things. Hundreds and hundreds of people in his household. And he's... Moving like this all across the Middle East, time and time again. What's one of the lessons, brethren? A number of you here have moved many times, haven't you? What is one of the lessons that you learn when you move multiple times? Where is home? Home is where the heart is, isn't it? There's something to that, and there's something spiritually to that as well. What is a stranger? What is a pilgrim? A pilgrim is a resident foreigner. A resident foreigner, someone who's from another place but they're living temporarily in a nation. They're not from there, they're from somewhere else. They hold citizenship somewhere else. They're resident foreigner, a stranger, an alien. Some of you hearing this sermon today are resident foreigners, aren't you? You're pilgrims. Some of you have been pilgrims and you're not anymore. God wants us to have that perspective. We're resident foreigners. Brethren, where is your true home? Where is your true home? When you think about it, be honest with yourself. Maybe chew on this after the Sabbath this evening. Where is your home? Where do you see your home being? Is it where your things are? Maybe the, the dwelling that you left this morning? Do you see your home as the place where you grew up? Do you see your home as somewhere else? Where is your home? Be honest, brethren. Meditate on this as you approach. And you go through the Feast of Tabernacles while you're living in your temporary dwelling. We're going to the feast, most of us. We're going to stay in a temporary place. A hotel room, a camper, a condominium, a flat, a house that we're going to rent. And we'll be reminded as we arrive, some of us will unpack our suitcases, others of us will not. Why won't you if you don't unpack your suitcase? Because you're not going to be there very long. What, seven, eight, nine, ten nights? We're reminded when we come back in the evening, we take off our clothes and we hang them in a closet that is not ours. We lay down on a bed that's not really ours with a pillow that might not be ours and we're reminded in many, many ways this is not our home. It's temporary. Brethren, as you go to the feast and you have those experiences, let yourself be reminded of the fact that this is not our home. This world is not our home. 1 Peter 2. 1st Peter. We'll go back to Peter again. Chapter 2. <clears throat> and we'll read verse 11. 1st Peter 2. Verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lust which war against your soul. I won't continue. Peter was writing to whom? You go back to chapter 1, verse 1. He says, To the pilgrims of the diaspora, their dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. These are brethren living in and around the Caspian Sea in Asia Minor. He's writing to them and he's saying, Brethren, you are pilgrims. Now, most of the people he wrote to didn't go anywhere. They lived out their lives in that area. They stayed there. Pilgrims? Yes, he was reminding them they were strangers, they were sojourners, they were passing through. And he wanted them to remember that. We need to ask ourselves, how at home do I feel in the world? How at home do I feel in the world in the society that I live in? Or do I belong somewhere else? Do I belong somewhere else? Let's go to Philippians 3. Philippians chapter three, and and build on this concept just a little bit more. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philippians three. Paul writing from prison, trying to encourage the brethren in Philippi, made some made a helpful observation here, reminding this group of the same thing Peter reminded the brethren of. Philippians chapter three. In verse 20, Philippians 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Brethren, where is your citizenship? Let's turn back to Hebrews 11. Need to finish a thought there. Where is our citizenship? Think about it. So I look around the room. I see people who have citizenship in Canada, in the United States, Trinidad and Tobago, Jamaica. Mm, did I say New Zealand? New Zealand. And elsewhere. That's our earthly citizenship. Brethren, but where where do we identify? Hebrews eleven. Let's go back to verse fourteen, as we're reminded that we're strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Hebrews eleven fourteen. For those who say such things, declare plainly they seek a homeland. Our forefathers and foremothers in the truth sought a homeland, something permanent. Abraham died in an area that would become. A homeland for the physical Israelites and ultimately will become a homeland for God's Israelites. But it still wasn't his home. Verse 15. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they'd come out, they would have had the opportunity to return. What is he saying? If they had remembered where they came from, they could have gone home physically. Verse 16. But now they desire a better country. That is a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. He has prepared a city for them. Mr. Ames talked about that a couple of weeks ago. These individuals desired a homeland, a heavenly country, because they were not citizens of this world. They were citizens of heaven. Brethren, are you a citizen of heaven or somewhere else? You know, some of us carry and some of us will use one of these at the feast this year. This is my passport, good for a few more years. This is a neat little blessing because it does a couple of things. Number one, it will let me into a foreign country, foreign from here, and it will let them stamp my passport with a visa that says it's legal to visit their country for 90 days or however long that visa lasts. The real good thing about this is that when I come back to enter the United States, They look at it, and they stamp it, and they say, welcome home. This thing says that I'm a citizen of the United States of America, and I can go anywhere in the world where there's a U.S. Embassy walk in, and they will treat me like an American citizen. Sort of a neat thing. And some of us hold these passports from other nations. You know what I mean. You know what it is all about. But is our citizenship here in our head and in our heart on the earth? Or is our citizenship somewhere else? Brethren, how much are these things worth? Our citizenship cannot be on this earth, brethren. It can't be here. Our citizenship has to be in heaven. And these trials that we experience are partly designed to remind us that this is not our home. Let's look at Galatians 16, Galatians 16. And as you're turning to excuse me Galatians 16, Galatians 6:16. 6, I'm not going to add unto or take away from the scripture here. <clears throat> as you turn there, I do want to clarify, brethren, we do need to be thankful to be able to live where we live and experience the blessings that we experience. We need to be thankful for the dwellings that we have, for a roof over our head, and for the abundance, frankly, that all of God's people experience to greater and and lesser degrees. We need to be content on some level in the physical life that we live, not always yearning for what we can't have. But I think you understand what I'm talking about. Our focus needs to be on the kingdom of God. We can't get stuck in society with our minds and with our hearts. That's what God wants us not to do. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. What are we reminded about or reminded of? Galatians 6, verse 16. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Romans 11, 11, I won't turn there, reminds us that salvation has come to the Gentiles. Salvation is for all of us, brethren. It doesn't matter our color, our race, our creed, our background. God has called all of us to be citizens of his kingdom. He wants us there. He's given us a down payment so we will be there. He wants us to act on that. Interestingly, though, as citizens of another country, we've got to act differently, don't we? Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, as citizens of, this, of God's heavenly country, he expects us to act differently. <clears throat> the laws of the land change, don't they? In fact, we've seen that very recently. We had a clerk this week, as was brought up in the weekly update, who was jailed because the laws changed from the time she started her job to recently. Something that was illegal is now legal. God is not wishy-washy and fickle. He is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever, He does not change. His laws are immutable. They do not change. Let's go to Acts chapter 5. We'll break in here. In verse 28, a little bit of background. Acts chapter 5, verse 28. Peter and John, you might recall... Preached on the day of Pentecost. They were preaching Jesus Christ. The Pharisees got a hold of them. Looks like they may have beaten them. They definitely threatened them. Probably with their life. Put them in jail for a short time. Told them stop preaching Jesus Christ. Don't use this man's name. And they let them go. And so what did the apostles do? Well, they prayed for boldness. More boldness. And they went out and they preached Jesus Christ again. The Pharisees got a hold of them again, verse 28. And they said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine instead of, excuse me, intended to bring this man's blood on us. You're blaming us for this guy. What was the comment? What was the observation of Peter? Did he say, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry, we're going to be quiet now. Because you guys have made a decree, you've sort of made a law that we shouldn't preach in Christ's name, so we're not going to do it anymore. What was the conclusion? What was the reaction? Verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Yes, we should obey the laws of the land, as long as they don't make us break the laws of God. But ultimately, brethren, we obey the laws of God. There are all kinds of things in this country that are, and in most of our countries, that are legal, but are wrong. They're legal, but they're wrong. You've seen billboards. Dial 1-800-DIVORCE. God says, I hate it. And there's only a couple reasons where I allow it. And anything else, you're committing adultery. If you remarry after divorce, that's just one of the examples. We're citizens of a different country, of a different heavenly country. Revelation 18. Let's look there. Scripture that you know, that you are familiar with. But this is why God says this We are not from here, we are representatives of a heavenly country. His ambassadors, his advanced emissaries, looking forward. Revelation 18 and verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. God doesn't want us to be a part of the world. Because, as we will be reminded on Monday, on the day, on the Feast of Trumpets, There is a punishment coming on this earth that he doesn't want us to be involved with. He wants us to be separate. He wants us to be protected from that time. Let me read to you from Dr. Meredith's article in the September-October 2008 Tomorrow's World, entitled, How Would Jesus Vote for President? We're actually coming up on a voting time For minor elections here in the United States, happens every fall. Dr. Meredith writes this, quote, The mission and calling of all true Christians is to help prepare the way, as advanced emissaries for the kingdom of God, the literal government, that the living Jesus Christ will soon set up. It will replace all of the misguided human governments of the earth. We should conduct ourselves with love and respect for all human beings, including those in political offices. But... We must always remember that our ultimate citizenship is not in or from the governments of this Satan-inspired society. Although we should serve others and do good on an individual basis, we cannot and must not get involved with the military or political efforts to reorganize or clean up, note this, Satan's deceived world. For the system itself is not God's system. He is only allowing deceived human beings to go their way and experiment with the various types of government during this 6,000 years of human history. Paul wrote, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and what communion has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And he quotes that from 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 15. But a very poignant reminder that why don't we get involved in things in this world, in the military, in the politics, in other aspects of society? Because we'd be trying to fix Satan's society. And what society are we citizens of? If someone comes to this country and moves to this country from Trinidad and Tobago. I'll pick on our trinnies in the audience. If they're a citizen of Trinidad and Tobago, can they vote in a United States election? No. If I move to France, can I vote in a French election? No. Why? Because I'm a pilgrim. I'm a resident alien. I am not part of this country. Why should I have any say on the politics of a nation that I am not involved in? Why don't we vote in elections in this country? Brethren, because we're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of heaven, of God's kingdom, of another heavenly country. We have no place in this world trying to impact its politics. Very powerful things to ponder over. Very powerful things to ponder over. We're of another nation, another kingdom, and although we should be emissaries and ambassadors, examples to the nations we live in. We're to limit our interaction with this world, not because we don't love them, But because we're not of this current Satan-inspired, sin-filled society. Brethren, our great privilege and responsibility in this world is to represent and set an example for Jesus Christ to the world of the coming kingdom of God. We do this through the way we walk, the way we talk, the way we act, the way we dress, the way we treat others, and the way we live our lives, through the way we focus And through our perspectives on life. And even through the way we handle trials. Why is it, brethren, that in trial, the people of God can have that peace that surpasses great understanding? It's because we know where we're from, isn't it? We know. We represent a heavenly kingdom. We know what is coming next. Brethren, this coming coming Feast of Trumpets, Day of Atonement, Tabernacles, and Last Great Day are special conferences of Christ's ambassadors on this earth. Convene once a year at the locations that God chooses around the globe. During these special invitation-only events, we'll be encouraged to continue to work hard as Christ's emissaries. We'll be reminded about the glory and majesty of the coming kingdom that we represent. We'll be given a clearer picture of what the world will be like when the kingdom we represent is finally here on this earth. As Christ's ambassadors, we're to work to remain separate from the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of the God of this world, Satan, the devil, because we're emissaries of a different heavenly country. Brethren, as we act as these emissaries, we must recognize that while we're representatives of God's kingdom to this society, our Father in heaven is going to use the time that we're on this earth, the remaining time, to continue to refine us, to mold us, to fashion us, to mold and fashion our character. And he'll do this through trials. As citizens of another country, we must come to change and come to see God's trials as a merciful gift from a loving father, a gift that is designed to remind us of the need for his soon coming kingdom, a kingdom we're all called to be part of. Mr. Robinson, a couple of weeks ago, stated it very well. He said, we need the pain of trials in this life because the pain of trials is a tool of God. Maybe this is one of the reasons why James said that it's a joy. And we should count it as a joy when we fall into trial and temptation. Brethren, I encourage you, as one of your own, don't lose sight of this reality. Remember the purpose for trials. The answers, the peace, the comfort in this world is not here. They're in God's kingdom, the heavenly country that we're called to be part of. As we go off to the Feast of Tabernacles, as we celebrate the Day of Atonement in a few days, brethren, ponder over what they mean for all of us and for all mankind. As trials continue to come in our lives, and they will, we must keep in the forefront of our minds that God allows them for our individual benefit. We need to use them, brethren. To become more firmly focused and to yearn even more for the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. A time when he'll set up his kingdom here. When he'll stop the hurt. And he'll begin the incredible blessing. Turn for a final scripture to me with Revelation to Revelation 21. I think you know where I'm headed. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 4. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Brethren, isn't this what we look forward to? If we didn't have pain and suffering and sorrow and crying today, brethren, why in the world would we look forward to the kingdom? Trials help us grow. Trials help us overcome. God uses trials to mold and fashion us. But he also uses trials to make his kingdom real. Much more real to all of us who in some ways live in the millennium already. Remember the passage, the message from the chorus of the special music brethren. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if my greatest disappointments and the aching of this life is the revealing of a greater thirst this world can't satisfy? And what if trials of this life, the rain, the storms, the hardest nights, are your mercies in disguise? Brethren, God's called all of us to be his first fruits. Remember who you are. Remember why you're called and what you're doing. Don't allow yourself to become discouraged through trials, brethren, in this life. But instead, push yourself to learn from them. To remember that they are God's mercies, his blessings, his reminders. As the creator of the universe personally places his hand around you, molding you, fashioning you to look more like him. Trials, brethren, are reminders that this world and this society is not our home. That God has prepared a future kingdom for us, a kingdom that will soon be here and that we'll soon be part of. I encourage you, use the fall holy days to remind you of this, among many other things. Work to become more stable and powerful Christian ambassadors. Use your trials to capture an even greater vision of God's soon-coming kingdom, and allow them to separate you from Satan's society even further. Because what if my blessings come through raindrops? What if our healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials of this life are His mercies in disguise.